So let's pray, okay? Lord, thank you for the day, and we ask now you take the Word of God, and by the, your power, Holy Spirit, you'd make application to our hearts. Um, so do that, and, and um, may the reality of Christ be, be honored by your anointing spirit of the living God, in Jesus' name, amen. So we sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature. Sing the next stanza, joy to the earth, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. So, so really, in light of the coming of Christ, the writer here says, joy to the Lord, the, the Savior reigns. So because the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ. Let, let men sing and be glad and be celebratory. And because of that, may all of creation, the rocks and hills and streams, may they sing with grandeur unto Christ. And may, may Christ be honored. And, and so you, that, that's the tenor of the Bible. And John, in the birth announcement, it says this regarding the coming of Christ in verse 14. It says that, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And then in Luke chapter 10, or chapter 2, the angels said to the shepherds, peace on earth, goodwill toward men upon all men upon whom his favor rests. And then when Christ inaugurated his public ministry some 30 years later, he went to the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I proclaim that I am the one of whom Messiah Prophecy spoke by the pen of Isaiah. Today is fulfilled. I am Messiah King. And this is the year of Jubilee in that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and I am uh, preaching good news to the poor and I am proclaiming liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Now my question is this. How do we keep this resonating in our spirit? And the book of 1 Timothy that we're studying deals with that issue. How do we keep the reality of Christ strong and fixed? And Timothy's answer in part is you teach the right thing, you instruct people to believe the right thing, and you live the reality out in the church. So Paul says to his Lieutenant Timothy, who's staying in Ephesus, chapter 1, verse 3, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote mere speculations. He says, you just teach the truth, teach the apostolic truth, Timothy. 
And as you do that, realize that, that this teaching that I've given you is sound doctrine, chapter 1, verse 10. It is sound doctrine in accord with the glorious gospel of our blessed God, which I entrusted to you. So sound doctrine, glorious gospel. And he said, and as you hold to these things, verse 18 of chapter 1, this I charge, I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may fight the good warfare. The good warfare. How do you fight the good warfare? By holding the apostolic testimony. He said, you live this way, Timothy. And he says, and, and, and really the end result of the, the goal of this command, verse 5, chapter 1, is love. Which comes from a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith. Now, I want that. I want sound doctrine, a glorious gospel. I want to fight the good warfare. I want to have this love which comes from a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith. I want that, church. I want that for you. And so how do you keep these things resonating in your spirit? Hear what he says. We're going to go to chapter 3, verse 14 to 16. This is how you keep the reality of Christ resonating in your spirit. The apostle says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So in this passage, Paul says, I want you to behave. I want you to be people who understand you're in the household of faith. And I want you to understand you're the church of the living God, the pillar and supporters, the buttress of the truth. So first of all, I want you to behave, or, or I want you to live correctly. When I was in high school, my freshman year, I had an elderly teacher who taught me biology, Mrs. Martin, and she always said two things time after time when she wasn't teaching. As we left the classroom, she would say, now you guys behave. You behave. And then she'd be teaching basic biology, and she'd just stop and she'd say, ain't God good. Now, she taught biology, not grammar. So she could say, ain't God good. This is Yakin County, North Carolina. Ain't God good. But I really thought as the years have gone by, that's, that's pretty good theology. Pretty good theology. Behold the goodness of God. Now behave. And Paul says, church, I want you to behave or to act properly. Act it out. And then he says this. I want you to understand you're part of the household of faith. It's a, it's a, it's a household term. You're part of a relational body. You're part of a family. You, you, you work with each other. See, 1 Timothy is all about the household of faith. It says in chapter 5, treat the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters in all purity. It talks in chapter 5 about, about how to relate to and deal with, with widows and, and young widows and older widows and how to relate to elders and how to live out the Christian faith, faith in community. We're part of the household of faith. It was part of a, a relational body. There's a wonderful little sermon preached in 1942 by a guy named C.S. Lewis in the middle of the Second World War, and, and Lewis says this. is called The Weight of Glory. It's really worth reading. But he ends it by saying this. He says that we're called to glory. 
we're called to live in such a way that we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, when we die. And then he says this. This is, this is just so good. He said, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our relationships with one another. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be that kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, and no presumption. Next to the blessed sacrament, the Lord's Supper, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And, and Paul says here, realize, church, you're part of the household of faith. And then he says this, he says, and is this the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth? Now, in Ephesus was the temple of Diana. Can you show the picture? I don't have the clicker, so I won't just show the clicker, show the picture of Diana. There it is. It's one of the seven, ancient, seven wonders of the ancient world. There's a man named Philon of Byzantium, who said the following, he said about this temple that was destroyed not long after this letter was written. He, he said, I have seen the walls and the hanging gardens of ancient Babylon, one of the great wonders of the ancient world. I have seen the statue of the Olympian Zeus, another. I have seen the Colossus of Rhodes and the mighty work of the high pyramids in Egypt. But when I saw the temple at Ephesus, rising to the clouds, all these other wonders were put in the shade. Let me tell you about this temple. This temple is 425 feet long, 225 feet wide. It had 127 pillars, 60 feet tall. So when Paul is trying to grip them with understanding the, the, the centrality and the power and the glory of truth that's been deposited with the people of God called the church. He said, you are the pillar and buttress of the truth. And when that letter was read, I'm sure everybody just looked up and said, yeah, we understand what a pillar is. We understand what a buttress is. Look at that. And then Paul says that the church has been given the truth and we're to guard it and love it and embrace it. And this is how you behave. This is how you, you live it out. And so the question is, but, but, but how? But how? Okay, say so we were to behave, we are 
the household of God, we're the church of the living God, the pillar and force of the truth. Now, often what we do is we, we, we tell people, you've got to, here's the truth, you've got to do this and do this and do this and do this, and that's proper. That's proper. Uh, but, but Paul, as he thinks about how do we get people to live this way, what do we do? He says, behold the beauty of Jesus. I read recently a true story about uh, some men who were going into one of the Gulf states, a Muslim country, and these, I think, six men at the airport were told by the thought police in this country, you cannot come into our country because you're too good-looking. You will cause our women to stumble into desires. They couldn't. They wouldn't live in the country. Now, I'm just saying, I've, I've traveled a lot. That's never happened to me. That's never happened. It's never happened. The closest is, uh, years ago, I was in India, and I was, they did the, the body scan, the pat down, and as I stood there, and this young man patted my body down, and he said, oh, sir, very nice physique. I went, yeah, you're right, you know. <laughs> and then as I thought about it, it really creeped me out. So it was, it was kind of, but you know, you don't, you have, you have thought police everywhere. You know, and there's an app, for example, that says in chapter 2, verse 9 here, that, that women should dress modestly. I'm, I'm, that's an application of being respectful of our brothers in the Lord if you're a woman. But, but, but really, if you're going to talk to people about how to behave, and, and it's the household of God, and it's the church of the living God, it's a buttress and pillar of the truth, Paul says you've got to be swallowed up in the majesty and greatness of Christ. That, that's how you live it out. He says, he, says, he says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. The, the, the mystery that, that the prophets and holy men long to see fulfilled has been fulfilled in Jesus. And, and this, this mystery has been fully made known to us. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 10 and 12, it says this, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter says that the holy men long to see these things. Angels long to see these things completed. They're completed in Jesus. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Once and for all, the system is complete. We have one high priest. His name is Jesus. In Matthew 13, Christ looks at his men. He says, blessed are your eyes and what they see and your ears and what they hear. Because I tell you that many righteous men long to see the things you, did, you see, and they didn't see it. And they long to hear the things you hear, and they didn't hear it. He says, this, behold, the mystery of godliness fulfilled, complete in the reality of all that Christ is for us. We sing about it in Old Little Town of Bethlehem by Phillips Brooks. We sing, Old Little Town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by, yet in thy dark streets shineth what? The everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years. See, hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Hopes, 
Behold, the glory, the mystery, the grandeur, the superiority of Christ. I want you to get, I want you to see what I'm saying here. Augustine said the following. It's, it's in the sermon guide. Augustine said, <clears throat> Any of you then who wish to extinguish the old sin, to douse desire, cupidity, with a new commandment, and embrace love, just as desire, you see, is the root of all evils, so in the same way the, the love of Christ is the root of all good things. He's saying you've got to see the majesty of Jesus. And then there's this little 25-page pamphlet written by a guy named Thomas Chalmers. I just, it's called the, the, the Explosive Power of a New Affection. And I, if you go online and read it, you have to read it a number of times and read it slowly, but it is phenomenal. And, and Chalmers says that, that there are two ways people try to get rid of old desires. Number one is to show the absolute end result of living in the way of the world. He says, you reap what you sow. He says, that's clear. It's seen by people. People see that, 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 that there's a diminishing return for these things, but, but really, it, it really can't change you. It, it'll hold you for a while, but it doesn't hold you with gladness. He said, but, but really, the best way to, to expel the passions uh, that you want to get rid of is to replace them with a more glorious, more wonderful, all-encompassing affection. And he said, that is found in knowing Jesus. And he says this. He says, because Christ places before the eye of the mind of the man, the one who made the universe and spoke it into being. Christ takes away our chill, that which will chill us into apathy because of the barrier of our guilt and our sin by becoming a sin offering for us. Then he says this, to see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ and to hear his beseeching voice as it proclaims goodwill to men and entreats the return of all who, who will to a full pardon and gracious acceptance. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of his former desires and the only way in which deliverance is possible. One great and predominant affection, and that's found in Christ. And that, that's why when Paul is sitting here and he's talking about the, the household of God and the church is the, as the pillar and buttress of the truth and you've got to behave, what does he do? He runs to the glory of Jesus. And that's why Christmas is so marvelous and so wonderful. And that's why that old gospel hymn that we sing, I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delights. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I love those words. Allured my sight. And church, that's what I want for us. That's what I want for me. I want to see the glory of Christ. Because when you see the glory of Christ, it conquers sin. It, it does. I believe that, and I want that. And so, so he goes this, this, to this line item. It's either a hymn that he is quoting from the early church or something Paul wrote, but it's here. It says this. He says, behold the mystery of godliness. He says, he was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels. He used to be preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So first of all, manifested in the flesh. Now, this is a culture that had some Gnostic influence, and the Gnostics believed that the flesh was putrid and ugly and horrid, and creation was a colossal mistake. But Paul, being schooled in great Hebrew thought, said, no, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then, and then he said, and really 
to underscore the beauty of creation and the worthwhileness of creation, God became a man. And this probably prefigured the upcoming controversies with Apollinarianism that said he didn't really have a body, or Nestorianism that said the two, mingled, two natures were not mingled, or the Ebionites that said he was merely adopted, all those things. But we simply stand up and say he is very God of very God. We say with Charles Wesley of old and Hark the Herald Angels sing, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see held incarnate deity. God became a man. And he says this, he's vindicated by the Spirit. Romans 1 says he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. He's the crucified and resurrected one. Behold the majesty of of Christ. He's seen by the angels, which probably refers to his ascension, the glory of the resurrected, ascended Lord who's praying in heaven for us right now. Behold the mystery of godliness. He says because of that, he should be proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. So, so church, I've been reading about the, uh, the gas dividend. Uh, read this week in a business publication that, that this year the average American driver will save $325 to $350 in gas in the calendar year 2015. Now the problem with that is you, you start thinking about that and you're going to spend that $325 five different times before July. You know what I mean? I can do this because I'm saving $325 this year. Let me suggest a way that you can spend your gas dividend right now. Give to the World Missions Offering. Take the $325 bucks and say, I'm going to give that to Lottie Moon and, and whatever else you're going to give to support 4,800 missionaries who are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. We, we support many Southern Baptist missionaries through Lottie Moon, and we have other faith-based missionaries that we love and support. I saw some of them this morning. They're here. But this week, we had a prayer guide for, for Lottie Moon, uh, for our world missions. And I'm just going to highlight three or four couples um, let me just say this. I'm not highlighting them to say that they're doing it and you're not. If you're fulfilling God's call in your life and you're living as unto him, that's God's call. But what I am saying is that our gifts keep these people on the field, telling people about Christ and trying to build the church in their indigenous countries and languages. One group, Glenn and Bethany, from this church, she is very bright. She went to Duke, and this, this young woman majored in physics and microbiology. That's a terrible way to go to college. No, really? I mean, can you think? Uh, that, if I had majored in physics and microbiology at Duke, I would still be there, and I'm 61. I'd be taking one hour a semester. And she and her husband are Southern Seminary graduates there in India, helping to translate the Bible, working with people so people can hear the gospel in their language, in their heart language. Think about going back to Duke, a 25, 30-year reunion. Everybody's successful. Many are doing well. And what do you do? Well, why do you do your physics and microbiology degree? Well, we're, we're translating the Bible in the mountains of, you know, East India. Another couple here, Joel and Reagan, from our church. He's a physician. They have a lot of kids. They have more kids than I can count, than I count to. Wonderful couple. Because they've had a very lucrative career here, but they're overseas, and they're overseas to use their medicine as a door to tell people about Christ in North Africa. And our gifts keep them on the field. 
or Jeff and Lori have been part of our church. They've been here. They're here about every other year, staying with us, living with us, walking among us. They have two small children. She's a, she's a blonde-headed, blue-eyed woman. They're, they're in Afghanistan. They lead a, a leadership seminar month after month for young Afghani men, and they talk about the leadership principles from the New Testament. They use books like uh, Lead Like Jesus by, by a guy named Ken Blanchard and Phil Bridges. Ken Blanchard taught at Cornell for 30 years, so he's got the academic credentials to speak to any environment. And they talk about the leadership principles of Christ, and they, they share the gospel of these young men, these seminars. And, and every day in their particular area, within 30 miles of where they live, people die. People die, but they're there with their small, two small children. And we, we, we give and keep them on the field. Or, or John and Allie, again, from our church. He's a physician. They're learning French. They're learning Berber. They're going to be in northern Africa using their, their medicine to reach out to people. I, I can't think of nothing more glorious than this to be involved in. It just thrills my heart. This is good stuff. So take that gas dividend. You know, take it. She's to be proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. And then he says, he was taken up in glory. You live with purpose and you live with hope. He was taken up in glory. Um, I, I had two funerals this week. And this is my personal opinion, some of you may disagree with this, but I, it, it sometimes bothers me the way we approach death as believers. And we pat people back and say, man, they're in a better place, and they are. But death stinks. Death stinks. I'd use stronger language if it wasn't Sunday. I hate it. I buried a sister-in-law six weeks ago. It stinks. Because you have people left behind that are grieving. And it hurts. It hurts horribly. And there are people going to be walking this Christmas for the first or second time or third time or 20th time without a spouse, without a child. And it hurts. But it's not a debilitating hurt. Because there's hope beyond death. Because if you know Christ, death is not the final word. That's why I love the little stuff. I just love the little statement First Thessalonians. We grieve, but not like those who have no hope. But we grieve. But we don't grieve like those who have no hope. But because we believe that Jesus is resurrected, and he's interceding, and he's coming again, and one day we will go to heaven with resurrection bodies and be with him forever. In Acts chapter 1, it says this. It says that they were standing there. It says, uh, it says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it says this. And when he had said these things, they were all looking on. And he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while... They were gazing into heaven as he went. Behold, two men stood by in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's going to come again. He'll take you home. And so we have incredible hope in, in the midst of a fallen, broken world. We live with purpose. We live with hope. I was reading this way about a man named Christopher, this week about a man named Christopher Hitchens. I read a couple of his books. He was an articulate, honest atheist. He died three years ago of a horrible cancer. And he was outspoken against all monotheistic religions, especially us, about the rules and regulations. And he was barely able to whisper on his deathbed, but he said this regarding people praying for a deathbed conversion, including his brother, who's an outspoken evangelical Christian. He said this, he says, redemption and supernatural deliverance appears even more hollow and artificial to me than it ever did before, close quote. And I thought, here's a man, he's, he's going to be dead in hours or days. And his heart is hard. I thought about Joseph Stalin, the henchman of the Soviet Union who murdered 50 to 70 million probably. He's with his daughter on his deathbed, and his daughter says the last thing Stalin did is he propped himself up on his, on his bad arm, and he lifted his fist, and he shook his fist into heaven, and he cursed God, and he laid down, and he died. And I thought, oh, God save us from a hard heart. Compared to a book on finishing the Christian life well by a father and son, and this is what they said. It says, we, we know that a vibrant personal relationship with Jesus and a daily walk with him are essential to everything. He is the spring from which comes all spiritual fruit. He is the vine we draw our life from when we plateau in our spiritual lives. And we do. We do. When we plateau in our spiritual lives, we must come back to him and seek renewal because he is the author and perfecter of our faith. So as a church, listen, if we're going to behave and be the household of God and live, live properly, and if we're going to be the pillar and buttress of the truth and speak with dignity and grace to, to our culture and our neighborhoods, if we're going to do that, we've got to be swallowed up in the mystery of godliness, which is Jesus, the fulfillment of the ages who was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That's our hope. So God bless you. Merry Christmas. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Okay. So Lord, thank you for this day, and thank you for the ability to open the Bible and to hear uh, your scriptures. And thank you that... Um, you, that, that, that as we study the scriptures and as we adore the reality of you and your triune glory and we rejoice in the mystery of godliness who is Christ that you change us and, and, and do that Lord I pray I pray you make us tender and kind and bold and repenting and joyful as we walk with you um, so blessed be your name God get, get the glory in our lives get the glory in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.